You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, these podcasts can be heard at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. Also, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 93A by Rudolf Steiner. Uh, It is uh, 31 lectures, uh, notes by participants, entitled Foundations of Esotericism, and it is translated by Vera and Judith Compton Burnett. This is Lecture 14, given in Berlin, on the 9th of October, 1905. We will speak today about man's sojourn in Devakan, between two incarnations. Again and again we must make clear to ourselves that this sojourn in Devakan is no other place than where we ourselves are now in physical life. For all three worlds, Devakan, the astral and the physical, are nothing other than three interpenetrating worlds. If we think of the world of electric forces before electricity had been discovered, we can form the most correct idea of Devakan. There was a time when all this was contained in the physical world only. It was then an occult world. Everything that is occult has, at some time, to be discovered. The difference between life in Devakan and that in the physical world is that man in his present epoch is endowed with organs enabling him to perceive the physical world, but not with organs that enable him to behold the phenomena of Devakan. Let us imagine ourselves in the soul of someone living between two incarnations. He has given over his physical body to the forces of the earth and relinquished his etheric body to the life forces. Furthermore, he has given back that part of his astral body into which he himself has not worked. He then finds himself in Devakan. As personal possession, he no longer has what the gods had worked into his etheric and astral bodies. All this has been cast aside. He possesses now only what he himself has achieved in the course of many lives. In Devakan, this remains his own. All that man has done in the physical world serves the purpose of making him more and more conscious in Devakan. Let us take the relationship of one person to another. It can be said that this is simply a natural one. For instance, the relationship between brothers and sisters who have been brought together through natural circumstances. It is, however, only partially natural. For moral and intellectual factors are continually playing in. Through his karma, man is born into a particular family, but not everything is conditioned by karma. We have, in the case of the animals, the natural relationship into which nothing else is intermixed. In the case of human beings, there is always, through karma, a moral relationship also. The relationship between two people can, however, also exist without this being conditioned by nature. For instance, a bond of intimate friendship can arise between two people in spite of outer hindrances. As a rather extreme case, let us assume that they were at first mutually somewhat unsympathetic toward one another, 
and that they found the way to each other on a purely intellectual and moral basis, soul to soul. Let us contrast this with the natural relationship between members of a family. With the relationship of soul to soul, we have a powerful means of developing devaconic organs. In no way can devaconic organs be more easily developed at present than by such relationships. Such a relationship is unconsciously a devaconic one. In his present life, what a person develops in the way of soul faculty through friendship of a purely soul nature in devakan is wisdom, the possibility of experiencing the spiritual in action. To the extent to which someone enters livingly into such connections, he is well prepared for devakan. If he is unable to form such relationships, he is unprepared. For just as color escapes a blind man, so does soul experience escape him. To the degree to which man fosters purely soul relationships, do organs of vision for devakan develop in him. So that it is true to say, whoever lives and moves here in the life of the Spirit will, over there, perceive just as much of the spiritual as he has gained here through his activity. Hence the immeasurable importance of life on the physical plane. In human evolution, no other means of awakening the organs for Devakan exists other than spiritual activity on the physical plane. All this is creative and comes back to us as Devakonic sense organs for the Devakonic world. As preparation, there is nothing better than to have a purely soul relationship with other human beings, a relationship whose origin is in no way based upon natural connections, blood ties. This is why people should be brought together into groups, in order to unite on a purely spiritual basis. It is the will of the Masters to pour life in this way into the stream of humanity. What takes place with the right attitude of mind signifies for all the members of the group the opening of a spiritual eye, E-Y-E, in Devakan. There, one will then see everything which is on the same level as what one had united oneself with here. If here on the physical plane one has attached oneself to a spiritual endeavor, this actually is among those things which retain their existence after death. Such things belong just as much to the dead as to the one who has survived him. He who has passed over remains in the same connection with the one still on earth and is indeed even more intensely conscious of this spiritual relationship. Thus, one educates oneself for Devakan. The souls of the dead remain in connection with those who were dear to them. The earlier relationships become causes which have their effects in Devakan. This is why the Devakanic world is called the world of effects and the physical world a world of causes. In no other way can man build his higher organs than by implanting the seeds for these organs on the physical plane. For this purpose man is transferred to earthly existence. The much-quoted phrase, quote, to overcome separate existence, 
close quote, will now become clear to us. Before we descended to physical existence, we lived with the content of our astral body, which was brought about by a deva. In earlier times, sympathy and antipathy in the human being were stimulated by the devas. He himself was not responsible. Then at the next stage man said to himself, Now I have entered into the physical world as a being who must find his own way. Formerly, I was not able to speak the word I, capital. Now I have become, for the first time, a separate entity. Previously I was indeed a separate entity, but also a member of a devakonic being. On the physical plane, I am a separate entity for myself, an ego, an I, because I am enclosed in a physical body. The higher bodies flow into one another. For instance, Atma is in truth a oneness for the whole of humanity, like an atmosphere shared in common. Nevertheless, the Atma of the single human being is to be understood as if each one were to cut a piece for himself out of the common karma, so that, as it were, incisions are made in it. But the separateness must be overcome. This we do when we form human attachments of a purely soul nature. By so doing, we do away with the separateness and recognize the unity of Atma in everything. By establishing such human relationships, I awaken sympathy within me. I then undertake the task of selflessly fitting myself into the world plan. Through this, the divine is awakened in man. That is why we look out into the world. Today we are surrounded by physical reality, by sun, moon, and stars. What man had around him in the old moon existence, he has today within himself. The forces of the moon now live within him. Had man not existed on the old moon, he would not have possessed these forces. This is why in Egyptian esoteric centers, the occult teaching called the moon Isis, the goddess of fertility. Isis is the soul of the moon, the precursor of the earth. Then all the forces which now live in plants and animals, for the purpose of reproduction, lived in the environment. Just as fire, chemical ether, magnetism, and so on, are now around us and surround the earth, So the moon was surrounded by those forces which enabled man, animal, and plant to propagate. The forces which at present surround the earth will in the future play an individualized role in the human being. What now constitutes the relationship between man and woman was on the old moon external physical activity, such as volcanic eruptions are today. These forces surrounded man during the old moon existence and he drew them in through his moon senses in order to evolve them now. What man developed on the old moon through involution emerged on earth as evolution. What the human being developed after the Lemurian age as the sexual forces is due to Isis, the soul of the moon, which now lives on further in the human being. Here we have the relationship between the human being and the present moon. The moon 
has left its soul to man and has itself become a mere slag heap. While we are gaining experiences on the earth, we are gathering the forces which during the next planetary evolution will become our own being. Our present experiences in Devakan are the preparatory stages for future epochs. Just as man today looks up to the moon and says, quote, You have given us the forces of reproduction, close quote, so in the future he will look up to a moon that has arisen out of our present physical earth and as a soulless body of slag will circle round the future Jupiter. On future Jupiter, man will develop new forces, which today on the earth he takes into himself as light and warmth and all physical sense perceptions. Later he will ray out everything which he had previously perceived through the senses. Whatever he had taken in through his soul will then be reality. So, the theosophical conception does not lead us to underrate the world on the physical plane, but to understand that we must draw out of the physical plane what we need to have, experiences which will later radiate outward. The warmth of the earth, the rays of the sun, which now stream toward us, will later stream out from us. Just as at the present time the sexual forces emanate from us, so it will be with these new forces. Now let us make clear to ourselves the significance of the Devakan conditions which follow one another. At first Devakan is only short, but ever more and more spiritual organs are being formed in the mental body, until at last, when his understanding has embraced the wisdom of the earth, man will have completely fashioned the organs of the Devakonic body. This will come about for the whole of mankind when all the world rounds are completed. Then everything will have become human wisdom. Warmth and light will then have become wisdom. Between the earth, Manvantara, and the following planetary evolution, man lives in pralaya. Outwardly there is nothing whatever. But all the forces which man has drawn forth from the earth are within him. In such a life period, the outer turns inward. Everything is then present as seed, and its life is carried over to the next manvantara. Broadly speaking, this is a similar condition to that in which we, in the moment of retrospect, forget all that is around us and only remember our experiences in order to preserve them in memory and later make use of them. So in Pralaya, mankind as a whole remembers all experiences in order to put them to use once more. There are always such intermediate conditions which, as it were, consist of memories, and so the Devakonic state is also an intermediate one. The initiate already now sees before him those facts which man only gradually has around him in Devakan. It is an intermediate condition. All similar conditions are of an intermediate nature. The initiate describes the world as it is on the other side, in Devakan, in the intermediate state. When he gets beyond Devakan and reaches a still higher condition, he again describes an intermediate state. The first stage of initiation consists in the pupil learning to penetrate 
through the veil of the external world and to look at the world from the other side. The initiate is homeless here on the earth. He must build himself a home on the other side. When the disciples were with Jesus, quote, on the mountain, close quote, they were led into the Devakonic world beyond space and time. They built themselves a tabernacle, in quotes, a home. This is the first stage of initiation. At the second stage of initiation, something similar occurs, but on a higher level. At this stage, the initiate has a state of consciousness corresponding to the intermediate period between two conditions of form, globes, a state of pralaya that comes about when everything is achieved, that can be achieved in the physical condition of form, and the earth is metamorphosed into a so-called astral condition of form, globe. The third stage of initiate consciousness is that which corresponds to the intermediate state between two rounds, from the old Arupa globe of the previous round to the new Arupa globe of the following round. The initiate is in the pralaya between two rounds when he raises himself into the third stage. He is then an initiate of the third degree. So we can now understand why Jesus had to reach the third stage before he could place his body at the service of Christ. Christ stands above all the spirits who live in the rounds. The initiate who had raised himself above the rounds could place his body at the service of Christ. The human ego consciousness was to be purified and healed through Christianity. Christ had to raise and purify the self-centered ego, the self-centered I, capital, so that when it has reached self-consciousness, it may die selflessly. This he could only do in a body which had become one with, bracket, there's a gap in the text, close bracket. Thus only an initiate of the third grade could sacrifice his body for the Christ. In our time it is extraordinarily difficult to attain to a complete awareness of these lofty conditions. The profoundly wise Subaro had his own knowledge. He describes three such stages of discipleship. We see the moon as the lifeless residue of ourselves, and we ourselves have in us the forces which once gave the moon its life. That is also the reason for the special sentimental mood in all poets who sing the praises of the moon. All poetical feelings are faint echoes of living occult streams deeply hidden in man. A being can, however, become entangled in what should actually remain behind as slag. Something must remain behind from the earth that is destined to become later what the moon is today. This must be overcome by man. But someone can have a liking for such things and so unites himself with them. A person who is deeply bound up with what is purely of the senses of the lower instincts, connects himself ever more strongly with what should become slag. This will come about when the number 666 is fulfilled, the number of the beast. Then comes the moment when the earth must draw away from further planetary evolution. 
If, however, the human being has connected himself too strongly with the forces of the senses, which should now detach themselves, if he is related to them and has not found a way to attach himself to what is to pass over to the next globe, he will depart with the slag and become an inhabitant of this body of slag in the same way as other beings are now inhabitants of the present moon. Here we have the concept of the eighth sphere. Mankind must go through seven spheres. The seven planetary evolutions correspond to the seven bodies. Old Saturn corresponds to the physical body. Old Sun corresponds to the etheric body. Old Moon corresponds to the astral body. The Earth corresponds to the I, the ego. Future Jupiter corresponds to Manas. Future Venus corresponds to Buddhi. Vulcan corresponds to Atma. Beside these there is an eighth sphere to which everything goes that cannot make any connection with this continuous evolution. This already forms itself as predisposition in the devakonic state. When a human being uses the life on earth only to amass what is of service to himself alone, only to experience an intensification of his own egotistical self, this leads in devakon into the condition of avici. A person who cannot escape from his own separateness goes into avici. All these avici individuals will eventually become inhabitants of the eighth sphere. The other human beings will be inhabitants of the continuing chain of evolution. It is from this concept that religions have formulated the doctrine of hell. When man returns from Devakan, the astral, etheric, and physical forces arrange themselves around him according to twelve forces of karma, which in Indian esotericism are called nidanas. They are as follows. Number one, avidya, ignorance. Number two, sanskara, the organizing tendencies. Number three, vijnana, consciousness. Number four, nama-rupa, name and form. Number five, shadayadana, what the intellect makes of things. Number six, sparsha, contact with existence. Number seven, vidana, feeling. Number eight, trishna, thirst for existence. Number nine, upadana, a sense of comfort in existence. Number ten, bahava, birth. Number eleven, dhjati, the urge toward birth. Number twelve, dajara marana, what frees from earthly existence. In the next lecture we shall study these important aspects of karma in more detail. The end of lecture fourteen.